I invite you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I encourage you to have a Bible in front of you and to follow along. It's way easier to understand what's being said when you have the text in front of you. You can see what I'm reading from, where I'm getting my points. It'll help you understand the Word of God better and be better at finding different things in the Scriptures when you're there turning and looking and reading along. And so we're there in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, and we're going to actually focus on verses 3 to 10. 3 to 10 is the next section for us, but to get there, I actually want to start in verse 11, oddly enough. I want to start by looking at the section that comes after the section we're going to look at, because that will help you understand the section we're going to look at. And so if you're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 11 to start, and I trust that looking at the section coming after our section, it'll help you understand why this is such an urgent text for all of us this morning. Look at verse 11 with me. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you sense the urgency? that the Apostle writes to Timothy in those verses? You can sense it, can you? You can see it in the imperatives that are right there. As for you, Timothy, flee. As for you, Timothy, pursue. Be in hot pursuit of these things. Righteousness, godliness, faith. Fight, verse 12. Take hold, verse 12. I charge you in the presence of the living God and of the Savior Jesus Christ, you have a responsibility before you that you must not fail. You must keep the commandment unstained. You must keep this free from reproach until Jesus returns. Can you sense it? There's an urgency in these verses. And you might be thinking, well, why the urgency, Paul? What's the big deal? Well, that urgency and the understanding of those words and that Paul, you can tell, is fired up to help Timothy understand the gravity of the importance of this issue. He has to say these things. And understanding that gravity helps us understand this section we're about to look at. It is a section that the only response to the danger he's bringing up is to flee, it is to run, it is to fight, it is to take hold. Do you see that? So he he's paints an issue in 3 to 10, and then he, he's painting a danger. He, he's describing a danger that faces the church. And he says, in no uncertain terms, the way that we deal with this danger that has the ability to creep into a church and to creep into your heart, the way we deal with it is by running, fleeing, fighting, grabbing hold of something. So the text we're going to look at this morning is of utmost importance for your soul and for the soul of this church. You say, what's the issue? Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see those words? What's the danger that he's talking about, that he is urging Timothy to run from, that he's urging the church to flee from? What's the danger? It is a desire, he says. To be rich. It is a love of money. It is a craving. 
for the possessions of this world. He sees love of money, desiring to be rich, craving for these things as an imminent danger that we must run from. Listen, he wouldn't use these words. Run, flee, pursue, take hold, fight, unless he thought the danger was imminent. Unless he thought the danger was encroaching upon the church, was already maybe in the church, and maybe was even threatening Timothy's very own soul. I don't think he would use such dramatic expression. And so he's calling the attention of Timothy to see there is a serious danger that you face, Timothy, and that the church faces. And here's what it is. It's the love of money. It's what we might call materialism. It's the idea that money is the be-all, end-all of life and all the things that money can get for me. All the gain that money can bring into my life. It becomes my goal in life. That's what materialism is. He's saying that this is a danger so real, so threatening, so dangerous, so imminent, that the only response is run, flee, pursue something else, get somewhere else. You got to fight. You got to take hold of something else because the danger is not irrelevant. It's not distant. It's near. It's insidious. It's subtle. And it creeps in. And if you don't fight, if you don't run, if you don't pursue, it will grab you by the throat and take you down with it. Friends, do you think materialism is a danger for the American church? Do I even need to ask that question? Isn't it obvious that this is a serious threat to any American church in this affluent society that we live in? I mean, we wouldn't be so naive to say that we're the people who are in, in danger of this. We wouldn't be so naive to say that, oh, that was a, a problem that existed in those times, that Paul had to address Timothy and his church and they had to deal with this. But in our day, we've escaped the temptation to materialism are you kidding me right i think of anything the temptation is even more present if anything in our society today we are living in maybe the richest society to have ever existed the technology that has advanced and the abilities that we now have we are living in the futuristic society that technology has afforded us where we are able to use money in all kinds of ways to enhance our life in, in just a variety of ways there's endless ways to use money to make your life more comfortable you can buy this Subscribe to that. Upgrade this. Uh, you are literally always being tempted the moment you wake up in the morning till the moment you go to sleep at night being bombarded with this idea that if you have more, if you take more, if you accumulate more, you can be content. You just need that raise. You just need that career. You just need that boat. You just need that home. You just need that car. You just need that new phone. You just need that wardrobe. You need those shoes. Whatever it is, we are addicted to the word more because we have bought the lie that more will make us content. We live in this atmosphere. Uh, you, you wake up breathing the air of this materialistic way of thinking. Every moment of our lives we're surrounded by it. It's so normal. It's so natural to our society. It's hard to conceive of a society that's not materialistic. It's, it's so everywhere, so present, so permeating that I think we may have started to imbibe this thing and we may not have even noticed. What about you? We know it's everywhere else. Are we going to say that it's not in this room? It's certainly not in my heart. I don't struggle with materialism. I don't struggle with the love of money. You say, what's materialism? Let's, let's look at verse 5 real quick and 
the end of it specifically, constant friction, talking about these false teachers. We'll get there in a second. Among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. Listen to this. Imagining, here's the heart of materialism, money-loving, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness is a means of gain. In the materialistic mindset, gain, that is earthly gain, earthly profit, uh, money that enables you to get a certain kind of lifestyle that you want, that is the goal. And in the religious world, uh, when materialism takes root, godliness it just becomes a means to a different end. You see what I'm saying? Godliness becomes a pathway to what your actual God is, namely money. And if godliness can get you some sort of money, or if godliness, some form of godliness, can get you some comforts in life and put you up another degree, can make life go a little easier, well sure, I'll be godly. Materialism puts money, puts comfort, puts the possessions of your life right in the center. It makes those things the goal. And everything else revolves around that. Your life gets oriented around the pursuit of profit in whatever form that takes. Materialism in the materialistic mindset will see godliness as a means to get something else. Godliness not for God's sake. Godliness not for love of God in Christ and truth. It is godliness for the sake of gain. And this threat is so imminent that Paul makes it very clear that the response to these things is run for your life. And so I want to ask you, how are you doing with money? Do you love money? Do you look to money? If you were to evaluate your own life and the schedule and the priority that you set, why do you do the things you do? At the end of the day, is it simply so that you can get more stuff and live with more comforts? Accumulation is the goal. What about you? Has materialism already infected the mind and the heart? Well, we are given some clear teachings in this text that help us face materialism. Help us face the love of money. Paul writes, because this is an imminent threat, then it's always going to be an imminent threat throughout the ages as the church fights for the truth. And I want us to see it. And here's where we actually start. It might start in a place you didn't uh, think it might start. But the way we face materialism, we're going to see, number one, is that we have to recognize false teachers. Uh, you, you see in chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Okay, so we know that this church in Ephesus, remember Timothy was to stay in this church, he was to teach this church and help this church, and they were a mess. And there were false teachers that had taken up positions of authority in the church, probably some of them were elders, and they were teaching all kinds of deviant doctrines. And here, Paul wants us to expose them. We've got to get to the bottom of these false teachers so they can be understood. Now, we live in a day where doctrinal uh, distinctives are kind of downplayed. The importance of sound teaching is kind of set aside. We don't want to be too edgy with our doctrinal statements. We want to kind of play the middle ground. Well, if you've been with us in the study in Timothy, you'd notice that it's frequently that Paul is saying to Timothy, you got to fight for the sound doctrine because if sound doctrine goes, if the truth about the Gospel goes, if we can't be clear about what God has said is true and how God saves sinners, then, then we're actually not helping anyone. 
He deals with false teachers in chapter 1. He deals with them in chapter 4. And here's a third time he's dealing with them. I mean, there's only six chapters here, and yet he keeps repeatedly coming back to the need for sound teaching and to expose false teachers. He describes them in such a way that shows their gross underbelly because on the surface, false teachers, listen, they look friendly, they look nice, they maybe look approachable, but Paul wants to get right to the core. He wants to pull away the facade and expose them for what they truly are. And here's what he's saying. These are people that teach a different doctrine. You see that in verse 3? A different doctrine. It's a kind of doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't accord with godliness. He's not referring to, let's get this straight, people who have a different view of your end times. He's not referring to people who have a different view of church government. Those things matter. We really value the right teaching of those things. He's not talking about that, though, because he's talking about people who are in disagreement with the fundamental message about Jesus Christ, the teachings of Jesus Christ. In other words, these false teachers will usually ignore what Jesus taught about the perfect holiness of God and the requirements of God. He'll usually ignore Jesus' teaching about a coming judgment where every human soul will be brought before God for judgment. These teachers ignore the seriousness of sin. Jesus made that very clear that sin was serious. They'll ignore that. They'll ignore the reality of the wrath of God on sinners who do not repent. They'll ignore the need of salvation. They'll ignore that Jesus taught that He's the only way. He's the only door through which we must pass to enter salvation. The only name under heaven by which man could be saved. False teachers ignore these fundamentals of the gospel. They ignore the atonement of the cross. They ignore the resurrection of the dead. They ignore these things. And so they put themselves in opposition to the very Lord they profess to teach about. See, the false teachers, it's saying they deny the teachings of Christ. Now, if you are familiar with false teaching, if you've seen them on TV, which is where they like to live these days, if you've seen them, you can you'll notice that they got their makeup on and they got their smile on their face and they look good and they can maybe present themselves as kind and good and faithful. And Well, Paul wants to put an end to that perception. Look at this. Look at this. These people are in opposition to the words of Christ, he says. They're denying the teaching that accords with godliness, he says. Verse 4. He, referring back to those, these false teachers, is puffed up with conceit. This means proud. This means self-reliant. This means trusting one's own intellect rather than the Word of God. He goes on, this leading to the next description. You see it there? And he understands nothing. <laughs> they're, they're puffed up. they got this big head and they got this little understanding. They actually don't understand the things that they teach about. They're ignorant of the actual truth. Spiritual truths that are given by the Holy Spirit are unable to be understood by them. They're over their head. They understand nothing. But yet, they're filled with this proud conceit. They're puffed up with pride. Look at how else he's described. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. These false teachers aren't interested in helping people, but they are interested in quarreling about words. They have this unhealthy craving. Those words in the Greek have this connotation of a kind of sickness. Uh, sickness is a dysfunction of the body. Uh, something foreign has entered the body to cause it to react. Uh, this is describing a dysfunction of the soul. Instead of craving peace and harmony within the church, these false teachers crave controversy. They crave quarrels. They want to get in a theological brawl. They like arguing. They get a thrill out of the debate. Quarrels about word is an interesting little phrase. It could literally be translated word battles. You ever been in a word battle where words are the weapons that you're using to combat your opponent? The, the false teachers loved this. They got these big heads. They don't really understand anything, but they crave to fight about theology. They love the theological brawl. They see their, their, their willingness to fight and quarrel and get into these word battles as a sign of their own spiritual maturity, perhaps even as a sign of their ability to lead. Friends, don't, don't make the mistake that wanting to fight over theology is a mark of maturity. It's not. It's part of a dysfunction. 
It's an unhealthy thing, it says. I'm reading Spurgeon's autobiography and I come across this section where he has to fight for the truth of the gospel. And you might think this great lion of a warrior, Spurgeon, would just love the battle and he'd want to go in and fight for the truth. All the churches around him in his denomination were going liberal and they weren't preaching the gospel like it should be preached. And he had to enter into the fray and defend the truth. But listen, he did not enjoy it. He would much rather just be focusing on the truth of Scripture and present the full Gospel. There was a point which they had to vote against him. The the, the whole denomination turned on him. And some of his own students that he had trained up in his pastor's college eventually turned against him, voting against him, even to the degree that they wanted him out of the denomination. In that vote, his own brother voted against him. It brought him so low, he didn't love the fight in a private correspondence. He said to a friend, this fight is killing me. And he meant it literally because he didn't live a long life. He died young. He didn't love controversy. I think the greatest among us, uh, if there's a true humility, if we're not puffed up like these false teachers, we don't love to fight. We don't love to quarrel about words and about doctrines we love clarity for the truth and we're willing to make sure we are presenting it in a clear way but man we don't want to fight we don't want to get into these word battles where we're just trying to one-up our opponent we're looking to edify look at what these controversies produce it says which produce envy dissension slander evil suspicions and constant friction you want to be a part of that church You want to be a part of a church where the leaders are all fighting about words and doctrine and can't agree on anything, uh, where there's envy growing like weeds in the congregation, dissension and slander and suspicions, uh, this kind of irritation that you just enter the room and you could sense the palpable frustration that people have with one another. This is what the false teachers were doing. It's not the blind leading the blind, it's the dead leading the dead. They're spiritually apart from God they're dead in their trespasses and sins and yet somehow they've gotten into the leadership of the church and because they have no understanding of the true gospel and of the true spiritual reality of redemption all they can focus on is the world and so the only product they have to offer the people in the pews is some form of worldly gain and that's what they offer them And the people who follow them, follow them because they get the hopes up that maybe in following what they're saying, they too will share in some form of earthly gain. Friends, this is a distortion of true Christianity. It is not true Christianity. It's not for God's glory. It doesn't emphasize anything about the true way that humans are redeemed from their sin. This is not Christianity. You know what it is? It's business. It's big business. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's a way for the people at the top to make money. And he makes it really clear. The whole motivation for these false teachers is gain, earthly gain, money. It's the stuff of the world. It's not anything else. Listen, Christianity that is primarily about earthly gain is not Christianity at all. Christianity is primarily about your health. Christianity is primarily about your bank account. Primarily about your prosperity. Primarily about your wellness. That is not Christianity. It's a sham. If Christianity is presenting itself to you like, here's how you advance your career. Here's how you move up in the world. Here's how you find your purpose. That's not Christianity. That's big business. And those people want you to sit in their pews or watch their shows or donate to their radio because they're interested in gain not your soul they prey on the poor i want you to see how wicked this is paul is making making it clear he wants to emphasize the wickedness that's why he's going to great degree to describe what they're really like consider how wicked this is first think about this think about the lostness of our world just let this sink in for a second there's something like seven billion people on earth four point or no, about, about one-third claim to be Christians. So let's just assume all those people who even claim it are saved. That leaves us with about 4.7 billion people that are without Christ. 
around the world, they're without a gospel of salvation. And if they continue the way they are without a Savior, they are headed to eternal destruction. That's what the Bible says happens to all people who are without Christ. Roughly 2 billion, I said that with a B, billion people of those 4 billion are without any access to the Gospel. They, they couldn't go talk to a missionary if they wanted to. They don't have Bibles. They don't have churches nearby. And no one's anywhere close. And these people, being without salvation and without forgiveness of sins, are dying by the hundreds every day. They have to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ or there's no hope. You, okay, take that and then also consider this. Just think about the, the physical poverty in our world. You, you thought about this? There are billions of people who live in poverty. We are rich. And there are over a billion people who live every day on under a dollar a day. That's their, that's their life. No shelter, no food, no medical care. And they're dying in quiet obscurity. Not only impoverished, but spiritually lost and here come false teachers and you know who the false teachers like to target they like to target the desperate poor that's who they target they like to get their greatest support from the poor they want to exploit the poor why because the poor often in their desperation are looking for something to relieve them they're looking for something to get them out of their poverty they're looking for some sort of hope in this life that could get them to a better place and here come these false teachers teaching that godliness that christianity is a means of gain a means of wealth hey come to jesus He'll make your life better. Come to Jesus. You could get a new car. Come to Jesus. He's going to make you healthy. Come to Jesus. Your kids won't get sick. Your life will be easier. Come to Jesus. And listen, they buy it. And it looks like Christianity to those people who don't know any better. And so they pay for it. They give to it. They donate to it. And these teachers get rich. They get rich on the backs of the poor. It's an absolutely disgusting parlor trick that these false teachers are playing on the lost and dying. They are giving a false gospel and they're reaching into the back pocket and taking their wallet. There's a scene in the book Les Miserables that I remember thinking it was such an interesting scene where this after a battlefield there's a bunch of dying and wounded soldiers strewn across the the land, and he describes this shadowy figure that's going around and looking at all the different people, and he leaves you in suspense to try to figure out what that person is and what they're doing, and it's revealed that this person is not there to help the sick and wounded and dying, but under cover of darkness is going around and taking their money, taking their belongings, praying on those who cannot defend themselves, praying on the dying, praying on the wounded, and taking all their possessions while they cannot defend themselves. It's absolutely horrendous what false teachers do. Giving a false gospel to a dying world that needs a true Savior. They give them a Jesus that cannot save. They offer them hope that is no hope at all. They do so in the meantime. They're taking the money. I mean, why do you think that some of the rankest heretics are the richest people on the planet? Why are, why are guys like Joel Osteen buying private jets? Why does Joyce Meyer and Benny Hinn and Robert Schuller and Creflo Dollar, to name some names, flying around from place to place giving this message to people? It's not because they care for the souls of the people they're ministering to. These people want money. That's why they're using those jets. They, they, they can give you all the reasons they want for why they do this stuff. At the end of the day, Paul makes it really clear. These people are not preaching the right gospel. They're in disagreement with the words of Jesus Christ. And they are using this form of godliness as a means of gain. They're deceiving millions into a false, Christless Christianity. A Christianity that is Christianity in name only, not in reality. There is no hope in that Christianity. 
to combat materialism, we have to understand that there are people who in the church will promote it under the guise of being Christian. And let me say as clearly as I can, it is not Christian. It is not Christian. It's not Christian. Now, maybe you guys haven't even taken any of these guys seriously. Maybe you haven't even watched any of their shows on TBN. Maybe you, you haven't imbibed their materialism exactly the way they proclaim it. But maybe we've taken it in in other ways, have we? Maybe, maybe the same seed of their thinking is influencing our way of thinking. You would know it if, if you've thought this way. You're, you're heading the same direction as them if you believe maybe in some unarticulated way, that God owes you some form of earthly comfort and pleasure. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God owes you some sort of comfort in life? That He owes you some some rays? That He owes you some sort of worldly pleasure? Do you you think that, that God's just kind of this guy in the sky that's just trying to get you that promotion? What if, what if God took it all away? Could you worship Him? What if it all goes? What if the house goes? What if the health goes? What if the car goes? The family goes? What if God brings you through a Job-like experience? Can you say, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Christianity. Christianity isn't, I'm trusting God to get more stuff. I'm trusting God to get gain. I'm using God as a means to a greater end. That greater end is whatever material stuff I want to accumulate in this world. Or you're saying, God, you are the end. You're the end of my search. You're the, the meaning. Christ, my Savior. That is my whole life is Christ. God is my God. He's my Father. Christ is my Savior. I will worship if I have nothing. Though He slay me, I will have hope in Him. I will rest my eternity on Him. And if He takes everything away, I'm secure. And that's why Paul needs to clarify what true gain is. This is our second point. We need to face materialism by clarifying what is true gain. What true gain is. Let's clarify true gain. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Uh, Gain, the the Greek word is porismos. It's referring to a kind of procuring, a kind of gathering. It refers to a kind of profit. It certainly includes money, but it's not limited to money. It refers to the what you can accumulate with money, the comforts, the different uh, accumulations of life that you can gather while you are here on earth. He's saying there's a kind of gain a worldly gain that these false teachers are after. But then he clarifies a true gain, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Literally, I like the Greek translation, mega gain. This is the gain of all gains. This is, this is super gain, true gain, everlasting gain. This, this godliness is referring to the idea of being near to God, being in a relationship with God, understanding who He is and knowing His great love for you given through Jesus Christ. And then this contentment that comes alongside that, being happy with who He is and what He has given you in the Gospel. Being satisfied with that. Being able to say, this, this relationship I have with God and with Christ, it's enough. It's enough for me. If you have that mindset, you have mega gain. You have super, eternal, great gain. This is the gospel. The the gospel is the great gain. It enables us to have this relationship with God and this contentment in God. This gospel which we understand it's from eternity to eternity, right? In eternity past, God the Father chose those who would be His to redeem them for salvation. In history, He sent His Son. 
to come and shed His blood, to die in the place of sinners, to rise from the dead, really, physically, to conquer death. His truth has been proclaimed from that day by the church that there is salvation in Christ. And that salvation in Christ is something that in believing today, this morning, you put your faith in Him, it will last for all eternity. The gain that you get in Christ is an eternal gain. It is an everlasting gain. The moment you believe, God will justify you. That means you'll be clothed in His righteousness. The moment you believe, He will forgive you. That means you'll be cleansed from all your former sin. The moment you believe, He adopts you into His family and you become His ever-beloved child. And you are then gifted eternal life. And that eternal life will go on for ages upon ages upon ages upon endless ages. Us receiving the great gift of God's kindness. Is that enough for you? <laughs> He's saying this is, the, this is the gain of all gains. To get this kind of gain, this kind of relationship with God, that is the foundation of all contentment. You, you might have thought as God is some nice, benevolent ruler in the sky, distant but powerful, who's kind of doing his best to make things work out for you. You've got to do your part, and he's going to try to do his part. Listen, that's not God. He is a sovereign king. He is good. And he is so good that he will judge the guilty. And he is not obligated to save any one of us. There's no obligation on him other than his own love and character. That He delights in showing mercy to the humble who call out to Him for salvation. He loves to save sinners. And Christ has done everything needed for you to be saved this very moment. You could have all your sins wiped away and your status, your eternal status, changed if you right now trust in Jesus Christ. And you will then be the recipient of mega gain. Great gain. Eternal gain. Unending gain. If you haven't trusted Him, you're an unbeliever, you walked in this room and you've, you're hearing this, you could do it right now and go to bed tonight having confidence that you are forgiven, adopted, and beloved forever. Now you Christians who have believed that, are you content with that? Do you have that contentment that is the great game? He wants to bolster our ability to understand why we should be content. Look at verse 7. He says something that will actually be depressing <laughs> if you're living a materialistic life right now. He, he says, look at verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now that's a depressing thought if you're banking on this life, isn't it? You will not bring anything with you. Sit and stare at that for a while. Seriously. Go home and reread that and, and let that, that thought just simmer in your mind. You're not taking anything with you. You could work all your life to accumulate all the things you want and nothing's going with you before God. Zero. The richest people throughout all of history, I mean, gather up Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and the Rockefellers and all these rich people. And they will die and stand before God on the same plane as the poorest of the poor. Because they go in with nothing. They go into eternity with nothing that they've accumulated in this life. You will take nothing with you. Doesn't this help clarify what you're supposed to be living for now? You're going into eternity and all that you've accomplished in this life is literally irrelevant. Your accumulations, all the things you've acquired, all your accomplishments, every possession you own, every dollar you've worked hard for will not come with you. You will go in to God to meet Him with zero, with nothing. You will stand before Him and your empire that you've accumulated will be an empire of sand. It will fall before you in light of eternity. All the accomplishments of all the richest and powerful people in the world will be like smoke in mirrors when they stand before their Maker. And so then that put perspective, what are you living for? 
Where are you trying to find contentment? Are you trying to find contentment in the things that actually will not last beyond this vapor of a life? Are you living for this life in a way that you're trying to get pleasures that this world has to afford? They won't go with you into eternity. You're trying to get comforts, accumulations, possessions. They're not going with you into eternity. This life is going to be over in the blink of an eye and you're trying to get stuff for this life? I mean, that's folly. Christians, we have mega gain. Great, eternal, everlasting gain in Christ. In this godliness that we are growing in by day. Is that not enough for us? In a billion years, when you're shining like the sun in the presence of the Savior, you won't regret giving up the little things for Christ. You will not be thinking back on these possessions that you had in this life. You will not remember all the good old days when you had more stuff. Uh, Not even close. You remember those toys you used to play with as a little kid? I don't know what they were. Micro Machines, Power Rangers, whatever they were. the, the, The Lincoln Logs. It would be a little bit odd if in this room we had older men and women fighting to accumulate all those toys. Wouldn't that be weird? You will not, you don't care about those things anymore. You have different values now, right? Maybe some of you still playing with those Power Rangers. That's a little weird, but we can talk about that. But you don't care about those same things your kids are playing with anymore. Do you you know that when we graduate to eternity, the things we're going to be looking back on, we'll even care less. Why did I care about the bigger house? Why did I care about the nicer car? All it did was give me a little more monthly payments. I mean, it didn't help. We have gain in Christ. Godliness with contentment, that's where the gain is. That's true gain. Are you content with your life the way it is right now? If you never got another raise, you content? You never buy that dream house, you content? You never get to purchase that car, are you content? You get to never can afford that major vacation. You okay with that? What do you love? Are you infected by that lie that says, if I only had fill in the blank, then I'd be content. That is not true. Because as soon as you fill in that blank and you get that thing you wanted, you're not going to be content. Because you can't. Because nothing in this world can actually make you content. Godliness is true gain. Godliness with contentment. That's where it comes in. That's where you become content. I like what Warren Wearsby said related to this. He said, true contentment comes from godliness in the heart, not wealth in the hand. Don't be deceived. That stuff you're trying to live for that's earthly possessions, that's going to try to get you earthly comforts, it's not going to make you more content. True contentment comes from godliness in the heart. Now, we have to finish with this third point. The third way we face materialism in our lives and in the church is to identify the real danger of it. Identify the real danger of loving money. Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and to a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the, for it, the, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see the danger here? Let's go back to the beginning. He's saying that this is so dangerous that you must flee from it. You must pursue righteousness. You must fight for faith. You must take hold of eternal life. Why? Because if you don't do those things, you're going to slip right into materialism. Listen, we're all tempted to do this especially living where we live and in this culture that we live in, we're tempted to just slide right into materialistic thinking. We have to see this is dangerous. X-ray your heart here. Do a little heart check. Do you desire to be rich? Do you? Honestly. Do you love money? All the opportunities money gives you. Do you crave the comforts and privileges money can give you? 
Be honest. And then let's look at what the dangers are. There's three dangers. They're all going to start with D so we can remember them. First, money-loving will deceive you. Money-loving will deceive you. It's dangerous because it deceives you. Those who desire to be rich, that desire, that's, a, that's a, something that starts in the heart, isn't it? It's something that starts in the heart, and therefore it's sometimes hard to notice. You start feeling a certain way. You start craving a certain thing. You start wanting. It starts as a desire. It doesn't start as a big external thing in your life. It starts with this desire to be rich. Maybe no one would see that desire. No one would recognize it. But there deep in your heart, you got this desire, this invisible desire to be rich. I just want more money. And he says that those who desire to be rich, what do they do? They fall into temptation, into a snare. That word snare has the idea of a, a trap, a hidden trap, something that you can't see. You're, you're walking through the forest. You don't know there's a bear trap set up. It's hidden in the leaves. You take a step right into it before it's too late. It's already got you. That's what a trap is. That's what a snare is. This is so dangerous that you don't even realize when you're walking right into it. You see that? So that's why you don't just go, okay, good, good, good point, Paul. Um, I'm just going to carry on with my life as usual. No, you get vigilant. You get looking around. You start asking yourself, am I going into the trap? Does, does my budget show me in the way I spend my money and the way I prioritize my week, is that all showing me that I'm actually walking right into the trap of materialism? It's not bad to buy stuff, but here's how it happens. I just want a little bit of a nicer car here. Oh, we could just use a little bigger house there. I want to get that RV. I want to go to that vacation spot. Oh, we could afford a little more luxury here. And suddenly you look at your life and it's shaped by the love of money, the love of stuff. You are trapped in a materialistic world. You can't even imagine what it would be like to change. And then you think about it a little more further and you aren't even willing to change. It deceives you. You become trapped in it before you know it. Are you being deceived as you walk into the trap of materialism, money-loving? Secondly, here's another. Money-loving is dangerous. It's just dangerous for your life. Look at what happens. Into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Senseless harmful desires. Do you see what he, he, if you notice, there's an interesting uh, thing to point out here. Verse 9 says, those who desire to be rich, that word desire, and then it says a little bit later in the same verse that they're plunged into harmful desires. Desire leads to more desire. Did you think that getting your desire satisfied meant to the desire going away? You, You got what you wanted, now you don't have the desire anymore? No, no, according to Paul, you have the desire, and then the desire breeds more desire, and then you want more and more and more. You're never satisfied. And so what ends up happening is what verse 10 says, the love of money produces all these kinds of evils. You just wanted money first, and now you're willing to cheat. Now you're willing to lie. Now you're willing to compromise. Now you're willing to cut corners. Now you're willing to bully in the workplace to get that raise. All those things are happening because you love money. It becomes the, the, the playground where a lot of sins start playing around in your life. You get one desire out of control, and it's producing all these other sins. It's dangerous. It's senseless and harmful to your life, it says. If you are not being careful, if you're going to be walking right into this deception, you've got to know this is dangerous territory. This is extraordinarily dangerous for you. And, and third, you say, well, to what degree is it dangerous? Money-loving is damning. Materialism in the materialistic mindset is Damning. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. That is referring to your eternal soul. That word plunge has the idea, it's, it's used to describe a sinking ship. They're going down under. They're being lost eternally. 
Because they have traded the lordship of Christ for the lordship of money. They have tried to serve two masters. And Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. It's me, it's all me, or it's not me. But they've chosen to not serve Jesus as their master. They've made money their master. They wander away from the faith, verse 10. They pierce themselves with many pangs. Because they've made money their master. And money is a cruel master. Jesus is a kind master. Jesus is a gentle master. He's good and tender. He's a shepherd to you. You could trust your life to Him and He will do you good all the days of your life. Money? Devote your life to serving money, getting money, accumulating money, living for the value of money. It's a cruel master. You'll never do enough to please Him. He'll never be happy with what you've attained when you come to stand before God, He'll abandon you. Who are you serving? Who's, who's your master? In other words, really practically, all the decisions that you make in life, you're serving God or money, right? You're either doing things in your life to lift up Christ and to serve Him and to make Him look glorious. And money is a tool to help you do that. Or you're living your life because you have staked your hope on money and having money is going to give you gain and so you live your life trying to accumulate money. You build your career not based on how you can serve Christ but based on what will get you the most money. You choose where you live not based on faithfulness to Christ but on what will allow you to get and save the most money or most possessions. You choose how you spend your time. You choose how you spend your weeks not based on how you can be faithful to Christ but how you can gather and accumulate and use money. And over time, the evidence abounds that money is your master, not Jesus Christ. You say, well, what does it look like to serve Jesus Christ? It is to reorient your entire life around worshiping Him and to use money so that you prove that money's not your God, but Jesus is your God. Use money to make much of Christ. So what do we do? We're back where we started. Run! Flee! Don't, don't try to play the game with this. Get out of the same room as materialism. Get in a different home. Get to a different city. Leave the country. Have nothing to do with materialism. It will damn you. It will deceive you. You go down that road. It is evidence that you don't actually trust Christ. You trust money. You say, well, i got a lot of money. What do I do? Paul actually talks directly to the rich you say, well, is it wrong to be rich? Is it wrong to have money? Listen, we're all rich comparatively to the rest of the world. Is it wrong to have the money we do? No. Look what verse 17 says toward the end of the book here, end of the chapter. As for the rich in this present age, okay? That's most of us. Charge them not to be haughty, proud, prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hope on the stuff that you've got, but on God, who provides richly with us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, not to be, or sorry, to be generous and ready to share. What do you, what do you say to the rich? Be rich in good works. Be rich in generosity. Be richly ready to share, verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the future. Every time you're giving, every time you're generous, you're investing in the future eternity. You see that? You lay for yourselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You want to fight materialism. Three two-word phrases that we get straight out of these verses. The ideas come straight out of these verses. First, live simply. Second, give sacrificially. And third, think eternally. Uh, be, be, don't be proud. Live simply. Don't make life all about you trying to accumulate all the stuff. Live simply. Live a modest life. Second, give sacrificially. Be generous and ready to share, verse 18 says. Whatever you have, you say, I've been given, to this, given this by God. How could I use it for Him and His glory? God didn't give it just so I can sit back and increase the amount of luxury I have in my life. You need to use your money to support your family. 
Absolutely, that's good and right. That's a wise way to use your money. But often when we are rich, when there's extra, we just think about using it more on our lives, our comforts. I think we learn here that getting more means giving more. That Christians are ones that say, in light of eternity, in light of what Christ has done for me, I'd rather increase my standard of giving than my standard of living. Live simply. Give sacrificially. And think eternity. Think eternally. Think about heaven. Friends, God is providing for you, isn't He? He has been so good to you, hasn't He? Not only in securing your eternal salvation and promising you glory forever and ever after we're going to be with Him, but He's been good to us through this life, hasn't He? He has been kind. And if we were to all gather together and have conversations, we would go on and on about the good things God has done for us. The way He's provided for us. The way He's been there caring for us. And even though at times life has been hard, He has never left us. And He has never abandoned us. We are taken care of, aren't we? We are abundantly provided for. We have everything we need. Are you content with it? Godliness with contentment in that godliness is mega gang, great gang, everlasting gang. John Wesley modeled this very well in his life. I think we could learn from his example. True contentment is, is happy, like the verse says, with food and clothing. If that's all we get, food and clothing, that's enough for us. Verse 8 says that. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. We don't need to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. True contentment is happy with whatever God gives us, even if all we've got is food and clothing. How did, how did John Wesley live in this kind of contented way? In 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give. One year, when he began to do this, his living expenses were 28 pounds. His income for that year was 30 pounds. The two pounds extra he gave away. The next year, his income doubled. 60 pounds he brought in that year. He kept his living expenses exactly the same and gave away the remaining 32 pounds that year. His income kept increasing with his popularity, with the things he was doing and writing and all the, the ways he was known. He was increasing his income. He kept his living expenses exactly the same. And what rose? What went up with the income? His giving. He kept his lifestyle exactly the same. In modern figures, he was living on about 20000 a year while making about 160 k a year. The rest, giving it away. He was content with food and clothing because he had eternity with Christ. He was content with the little things, the, just providing for his family. Why? Because he had this great gain. He had eternity of being rich. He had an eternity before him of being prosperous. So he could live simply now. Friends, we're going to be rich for all eternity. Let's be generous now. That's what the Bible calls us to. And let us, with all diligence, run, run, flee the materialism that exists all around us all the time and is always trying to make a way into our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful that we are so well taken care of. We, we have everything we need. In You, in Christ, by the Spirit, with Your Word, we are so overwhelmingly provided for and we recognize that we have only deserved Your condemnation. But You have given us salvation, full, total, and eternal salvation. <laughs> Not something we need to earn by working, but something that was given freely as a gift. Oh Lord, if we are not content, I pray that we would spend time confessing to You. 
reminding ourselves that when we are right with You and we are in relationship with You, we can have contentment and that is great gain. Lord, make it, make it clear, write it on our hearts that contentment is better than millions of dollars given to us. Contentment is better than all the things this world has to offer. Lord, we, do not want to, we don't want the world in exchange for our souls. So Lord, help us to be wise here, to live simply, give sacrificially, while thinking eternally, so that you would be glorified in the way we use our money. In Jesus' name, amen.